Welcome to Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. Thank you so much for being here and listening. Uh, I have a really wonderful conversation to share with you uh, that I had with Kimberly Ann Johnson recently. Um, Before I get to it, though, I just want to share a couple of things with you. The first is that I'm going to be teaching uh, two special online classes. Uh, The first is going to be for the Spirit Loft uh, up in Toronto. My friends Catalina and Andre invited me to be a part of their Our Next Guest series, where they have uh, teachers from different parts of the world teaching online classes for their community and for anybody else who'd like to participate. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, it's on February 11th, which is a Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and it's $20, and you can sign up uh, at their website. It's spiritloft.com, and and there is a workshops and events page there, so you can uh, check it out and sign up. The second is going to be for Our Breath Collective, um, which my guest today, Kimberly Ann Johnson, is a part of, and uh, and she connected me and invited me to to teach this class. Um, And that's going to be on Sunday, March 7th, also at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and also $20. Um, If you're interested in in participating in that class, you can go to OurBreathCollective.com. I'm looking forward to teaching both of these classes. I hope that uh, you can be there for one or the other or both. Um, Also, if you're uh, picking up what I'm putting down, you can always become a part of the Movement Brooklyn online community. Um, I teach a weekly class there. I hold weekly office hours. We have monthly focuses, and I put out videos and content related to those focuses and there's about 120 hours of pre-recorded classes that are available. And there's an ongoing conversation through the uh, Movement Brooklyn online live feed with the uh, entire community. So if that's something you're interested in, you can just go to movementbrooklyn.com or members.movementbrooklyn.com to sign up. If you uh, want to follow from afar, you can always... Uh, Check out my Instagram at Kyle Grit or the Movement Brooklyn Instagram uh, at Movement Brooklyn. And if you're uh, enjoying the podcast, uh, whether you're new or you've been following for a while, uh, do me a huge favor and on whatever platform you're you're listening on, give a a, a little rating or review, and uh, that goes a long way in uh, in helping us out. Awesome. I think that's all the announcements. So let's get to the podcast. Uh, Like I said, I was really fortunate to get to chat with Kimberly Ann Johnson recently. Um, If you're not aware of uh, Kimberly's work, uh, she is a sexological body worker, a somatic experiencing practitioner, yoga teacher, trainer, postpartum advocate, and a single mom. She helps women heal from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, and sexual boundary violations. She is the author of the early mothering classic, uh, The Fourth Trimester, as well as her upcoming book, uh, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. I really enjoyed getting to have this conversation with Kimberly and I think you're going to enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. So here it is, Kimberly Ann Johnson. Congratulations on the book. I mean, that's thank uh, you. I'm so and I'm so happy you emailed me and 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 sent me a copy to read because, uh, well, two things. One, I really enjoy your writing. Uh, oh, now thanks. that I've gotten to read it, um, and two, it's talking about a topic that at least in the beginning, you know, a lot of the talk on the nervous system is something that has been pretty unfamiliar to me. And I've read the pocket guide to the polyvagal theory. And I read the body keeps the score, um, which I know are kind of like landmark books in that world. But I have to say, I don't know, like the way that you laid everything out was very clear. And I always say that when I read, I I only retain like 40% of what I read, even though I read a lot. Um, but your talk of the nervous system, I don't know, it was the, the, the language you used just really like 
oh, this is what I would, this is what I would pass off to somebody to be like, oh, here's, here's the information you should know in a, in a really concise and, uh, I don't know, palatable way. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. So mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got to read the first chapter, uh, as you suggested. Um, but I'm actually kind of chomping at the bit to just like dig into the rest of it. Oh, awesome. Um, but I think the first part that kind of stood out to me is that I, you know, people often like speak of their bodies and their minds in this like mechanical way when, uh, you know, I've listened mm. to people talk and they often refer to like mechanical things as like complicated, but we're complex. So they, we can't really use these comparisons very, you know, in, in a, in a really functional way, mm. but we often talk, people often talk about trying to to fix themselves or that, you know, and, and fixing often entails that they're not supposed to feel certain emotions. And I love that in your book that you're, at least in that first chapter, you were saying, it doesn't mean emotions will go away or that we won't feel the feelings. It's just a, a matter of almost like the lens we look through as we approach them. Hmm. Yeah, the fixing thing is so important because if we approach ourselves and we are going to fix something because presumably you fix something that's broken we're already approaching it from a sympathetic nervous system perspective so under stress so our sympathetic nervous system under stress is going to be looking for things that are wrong and it's going to be looking to match that activation or intensity so even if a switch of a flip from fixing myself to observing, being curious, uh, there's so much emphasis these days in really the nervous system. You know, the nervous system is such a hot topic right now. So there's so much emphasis on taking a deep breath or doing your quote unquote self-care practices that are mostly all focused on downregulation, on relaxing, on, you know, um, slowing down. And those are, slowing down is helpful because slowing down helps us observe things. But what I was trying to bring forth is a bit more of a nuanced understanding that, you know, for some people taking a deep breath when they're already stressed is not going to help at all. In fact, it might make them more stressed. And um, you know, cause you're a movement teacher. It's like a lot of times we need to move and how we move and how fast we move and, and what we're doing is one thing, but we need that in order to be able to, you know, it's like the kind of drawer that you have to push in before it slides back out. You can't just keep pulling, trying to pull it out, pull it out, pull it out. It's not going to come. You have to move in the direction that it's going in order to let it come out. So as far as the emotions go, they're really signposts for us. And we tend to think, oh, I'm, it, it depends because everyone has different relationships with their emotions. And I think for the last 20, 25 years, it's been pretty much popular psychology to like feel your feelings and no one can argue with your feelings. And um, really I'm saying, yeah, emotions are important just like all parts of our human experience are important, but our emotions are telling us about our physiology. And when we understand our physiology, we can get out of layers of self-blame and self-shame and, and self-flagellation about, well, why am I always so angry about this? Or why do I always get so sad about this? Or why don't I feel much at all? And when we realize the physiology of it and how that inner connects with both our connective tissue and our social conditioning, then I feel like we're really in the, in the zone. We're in like, we're in the matrix. We're in the place where like, okay, now, now something's going to change. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it sounds to me this, at least the way I kind of interpret it is like this respecting like the, the evolutionary purpose of feelings and emotions, as opposed to them being something we're supposed to try to control. Definitely. And that there's, you know, if we're going to just take two basic emotions, we can take anger and sadness. And in general, 
it's okay for men to feel angry and they're socialized even to go in anger and anger is correlated to a fight response, which is in the sympathetic nervous system under stress. It's not so socially acceptable, especially among white women to be angry. Um, and so white women and women in general are tended to be categorized as more like sad or crying, or it's okay to, to it's okay to be vulnerable. Um, a freeze response would be like acceptable for a woman in a certain way, but not very acceptable for a man. And so we start to see how there's gendered layers to it and that we need to restore the full function because it's just a natural thing to feel angry and to feel sad and to feel joy and to feel a lot of other, a lot of other emotions. Um, but we get into physical habits, postural habits, behavioral habits, when we have those emotional signposts that are telling us about our state, and then we either internalize them and turn them in on ourselves. So if you internalize the anger and instead of being mad at a situation, you become mad at yourself, you're disarming a lot of your autoimmune responses and you're also just creating a lot more tension, right? Um, and on the other hand, if you're never letting yourself let down, if you're not letting yourself have a pair, you know, tears falling, fluid release as a parasympathetic um, response in not under stress in health. Um, it's not that crying can't be a trauma response. It could be, but it can also be a release, just like grief can be a release. So really my work is trying to offer permission and almost like a code so that we can communicate better with each other. And instead of blaming one another or interpreting behavior, we can actually relate to the physiology because we think we're like personalities, right? Like I'm Kimberly, I've got red hair. You know, I used to be a yoga teacher, I'm a rolfer. Now I work in women's health and sexuality and like you're Kyle and you teach movement and you're from Lake Tahoe. And so we think like that's what's communicating, but actually, we are responding and relating to something that's much more elemental than that, that we're really like two nervous systems that are responding and reacting to each other, looking for cues. Am I safe? Do you like what I'm saying? Um, you know, is this, do I belong with the other guests that you've had on the show? Um, you know, what headshots should I send? And, but all of that's coming from, from, you know, of course, this belonging layer, which we haven't talked about yet in the social nervous system. So, um, you know, if we feel safe in our social nervous system, then we feel we belong. If we feel unsafe, we feel that we don't fit in. Um, we feel that we have to fawn. We have to be like extra nice in order for someone to not harm us. So we're always just cycling through these cascade of nervous system responses. Um, and we tend to have these really sort of template ideas like, oh, well, sympathetic is fight or flight and that's bad and parasympathetic is um, rest and digest and that's good. And so I'm really trying to depathologize all of the states because they're all super useful and they're all, they're all there for a reason. And we don't have to get all caught up in like the why because that actually just reinforces it. And also the why is created related to the fixing a lot of the time. We can just, I mean, what I found is just this, the simple stencil of how the physiology works is enough to create a, a change of like, wow, okay. When I walk in my dad's house, my parents' house, and he's looking at his iPad on one hand and he has a phone in the other hand and he doesn't look up to say hi and he doesn't really respond to me. It's not actually that he's disgusted with me or he doesn't like me, which is what it feels like at the time. When I walk in, I haven't seen, even if it's only been a day or something, it's like, it's not really normal for someone when you walk in a room to not look at you and greet you. Like that's the normal thing to do. That's, uh, that's what we expect as, as mammals and social animals. It would be like seeing a baby. When I moved back from Brazil, where everyone loves babies. In fact, I was in the market in Boulder and I'm, you know, um, walking with her face out in the baby Bjorn and she's expecting fanfare. You know, she's expecting everyone to be like, no, senora, que coisa mais linda. And nobody's even looking at her because there's a whole other concept of personal space and propriety. And as a baby, she's like, what do you, what about me? Like, 
what's going on? You know, because a natural thing to do when you see a baby is your eyebrows raise, your face lights up, you're surprised. That's part of our attachment wiring. So then I could walk in my dad's house and instead of being like, it's about me, he's disgusted with me. He doesn't like me. I'm like, oh, he's super dorsal. Like my dad is very slow. He is in a kind of extreme vago dorsal state, which is a variation on a freeze state. And that's how he's seeing his life. So he's not even noticing that he's doing that. If he knew that what he was doing was making me feel like he was disgusted by me, he would be so surprised because that's not what his internal experience is because he's stuck there to a certain extent. Yeah. So so much of like what you're talking about is like um, compassion and and so much of reading these these things and reading the beginning of your book is like it, it, it I think oftentimes we get caught up in our own selves and being like oh well how do how who am I like how does this affect me how do I make the changes but so much of it is like well when you read it and you think about all the people that you're surrounding yourself with or crossing paths with everyone has like their unique world that they're existing in some of it is the, I forget how you said it. It was, um, if it was like imprints from their life. And then some of it is like, what's their primally. And then the collaboration of the two. And when I think about those things and all the people I cross paths with, and even the moments where I think about getting frustrated with somebody, for instance, it's like, well, no, there's compassion there because look at all the different elements and, and all the nuance that has come to create these these distinct characteristics or even just these distinct moments that we share, um, you know, socially, societally, culturally that have like created this, this being that I'm having a moment with, you know, it's, it's not just, as you said, kind of like your, your dad, not, it's not that he just doesn't care. There's, there's so much that's brought into a moment. Definitely. I think one thing that I've been it's really important to me is that like when you're saying you, you said when I think about getting frustrated with somebody, so Mm -hmm. thinking about getting frustrated is already a step removed from just being frustrated Mm -hmm. and how you would express that frustration. And for instance, frustration is a low level fight response. Um, Sometimes we don't recognize that we're frustrated or irritated, uh, but we tend to have this, idea that the person who is angry is the culpable person and the person who is um, who is not angry or is perhaps in a freeze place uh, has less responsibility. I don't love the word responsibility, but we'll just work with it for a second. The reason I've been thinking about this is because over the course of my life, I've been kind of a goody two shoes. So I was a high achiever in high school. I kind of, I never really wanted to defy my parents' rules. Um, I didn't follow like, you know, the yellow brick road or anything. I have had like a, I've had a windy path, but I haven't, uh, I was recently asked to be, or to pitch a podcast where the, what I was asked to do was talk about a situation where I was like to blame kind of. And you know, I was like raking, racking my brain for like what I've done wrong kind of thing and errors. And the, the podcast is called confessions. And it's about like things that have like basically, you know, black spots in your life that you feel shame about or things that happened to you that changed. Like one guy accidentally hit a person that was on a bike and killed them when they were in ninth grade. And then Um, that changed the course of who they thought they were and how they interacted socially and stuff like that. So as I was going through, you know, my past and my life and I'm the oldest in my family, I thought, you know, I was pretty, I wasn't a great big sister to my sister. She drove me crazy. I smacked her across the face once. Um, She kicked a phone in my face and broke my front tooth, you know, okay. But like, that's not really that bad. You're like a mean older sister, but like, I didn't like do a practical joke and get her like leg broken or anything, you know? But what I realized was it's not any more dangerous that the dark spots in my life, which are, you know, I was sexually assaulted in college when I was 19. Um, I had a guru experience for about four months in India when I was in my early thirties, that was really confusing 
and ultimately damaging, but also very redemptive in some ways as well, that we like to, we like to assign blame to what we're calling the perpetrator. And in my case, I think there's very clear perpetration in some people's cases, right? Like there's a difference between a stranger rape and a date rape. Um, it doesn't mean that they're both not wrong and unacceptable. It just means that it's a different experience. And it's not any more dangerous that I did not listen. And this is, this is my personal experience. I'm not talking about other people's experiences right now. But in my personal experience, the night that I was date raped, I had a lot of intuitive clues that night. I, along the course of the night, a lot of different times, I was like, this doesn't feel right. And then when I would think it doesn't or feel it doesn't feel right, I would tell myself, well, this person is friends of your friends. Why are you being so paranoid? And then another thing would be like, I don't think it's safe to walk home with this guy. And then another thing, but it's not safe not to walk home with someone too. So, so much internal doubt and questioning that ended up in an extreme freeze response where I couldn't, I couldn't speak or act as loud. And even in the midst of the whole process, when I thought I should scream and get help, the next thought was, I don't want anyone to see me in this position. What if somebody walks in and sees this? And that's, it's a, an absence of a self-protective response that's getting deactivated by social nervous system pressures. So I'm so socialized that I think an active impulse, which eventually I did get away, through, through force. So I eventually I did activate my fight branch of the nervous system. Uh, it took a while and I, there was already transgressions before I was able to do that because of the, the narrative and the second guessing in the social nervous system, which happens to be something that impacts women more than men because of our estrogen, which is a bonding hormone and, and makes us more aware of interconnections and how other people are feeling as an animal, you know, as a survival instinct. So we take care of our young. So I say that just to say that I'm really wanting to, because nervous systems relate to nervous systems and we want to believe that they are just bad people. There's just these people at the Capitol building that are bad and they just do stupid shit and we're not like them. And um, you know, there's, there's just the person who does the bad thing and the person that's on the other side of it, but we give away our power. The people, those of us who are in positions of less structural power, which as a woman in some situations I am, and in, as a white person, I'm not in other situations and, you know, it's variable. I, I really want us to look at this idea of culpability, like circling back to this podcast was like, Okay, but I contributed to those circumstances, my darkest times. It doesn't mean it was my fault. It doesn't mean I'm glad it happened. It doesn't mean I, I want it to, I don't want it to happen to anyone else. Um, it's not even an illusion of control because I'm not trying to say like, oh, well, if, if you have a perfectly regulated nervous system, bad things will never happen to you. That's not true at all. Um, but it's, it's, it is giving us more power in terms of recognizing if I can't expect, I mean, I hope, like I hope because of my book and I hope five years from now, the way that culture is changing. And I have some hope to believe it's possible because I wrote my first book four years ago, the fourth trimester. And the way people see postpartum care now is totally different in four years. The public conversations, maternal leave, everything is totally different. So I think, okay, I do have some reason that I could believe that this is possible, that as a collective, we could start to understand and read people's nervous systems. But until then, we have to be able to communicate our own. Otherwise, how am I, you know, the Aziz Ansari case, he's just supposed to know that the girl is in the free state? Because verbally reinforcing isn't necessarily going to take someone out of a free state. It's not necessarily going to make them make a different choice. Mm. Um, but until we actually know what it feels like in ourselves, when are we in a freeze? It happens all the time. It's, it's not just a big deal thing that, you know, when you're really fucked up, you dissociate. We do it all the time where we, we hesitate in a conversation. It's a mini freeze um, where we don't know what to do next when we're procrastinating. Um, 
you know, when we're uh, constipated, like there's so many instances, but we have to actually live in this body in order to perceive that we can't understand it just with our minds and our personalities. Yeah. Do you think that there, because of the way we exist now with so much social media and, and especially with COVID, like things like this being, you know, over Zoom and online and, and things like face masks and um, also just, especially like when I, when I think of like kids and video games and tablets and all the things, you know, that affecting like our, our social nervous system and our development of, um, and yes. our ability to do things like, you know, you know, interrelate that, it, you know, goes beyond just the, the vocal, vocal communication and also reading expressions and, and co-regulate sure. and things like that. I, I don't know what, what, what the landslide might look like, but I, I have to imagine that, you know, as you said, the social nervous system is this really integral part and it's like our, our newest part of our, our evolution. Right. And if we're almost already kind of like flipping that around, there must be some, some repercussions we need to be looking out for. Yeah. I've been giving that a lot of thought because when, you know, we are an adaptive species, most are, and we can also adapt to things that are not good for us. Um, we can habituate, like we like to think, I think as body people and like, you know, Rolfing, like the ethos of Rolfing is like, we're in a gravitational field and with the right input, we will align to gravity. I, I do believe that. And I also do know that people habituate to things that aren't good for them. Um, <laughs> I feel like taking your mask off is like the new striptease. You know, it's like the, the big reveal, like what's below the eyes. Mm -hmm. um, we, I think there's going to be a huge hunger for gathering because a, a deeper physiological need is touch and proximity. Um, and I think that it's going to be, it's like bringing an animal out of a cage. What's that movie with, is it? where Robert Redford's like a horse whisperer. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I've never seen it, but I, I know what you're talking about. Have you, the, the scene where he just, he's like sitting in a field with a horse and, and then a whole night goes by mm -hmm. and then the horse like just slowly starts to come to him. Um, you know, we're, we've been, uh, we've been metaphorically caged. I want to be careful with that because like this whole weird American neurosis with freedom and like people thinking their freedom's getting taken away because they have to wear a mask is just freaking weird. Um, I think that's a very limited conception of freedom in a very privileged place where people have no idea what it's actually like to have real freedom taken away. Um, that being said, I mean, it's going to be, especially for children, going back into a school that's filled with bodies. Um, it's just going to take a lot of time for them to, even though there's going to be a hunger for that gathering, it's also going to be really high intensity because we're not used to dealing with so much, so many nervous systems at the same time anymore. Mm -hmm. And what, and what about like um, kids who are developing and developing, I don't know if we, if you would say developing their social nervous system, who are, you know, highly addicted to social media and video games and things like that. Um, you know, what, what, what does that start to look like? Or, or do you think that there will be like a, I don't know, like a cultural breakaway from that at some point, potentially, maybe I'm asking you to make predictions that are, I, I shouldn't be asking for, but I, but I'm, I'm curious. Well, I have a 13 year old daughter and she's Gen Z. Gen Z is very critical of millennials. Uh, kind of like Gen X is about boomers. They feel like a lot of people in Gen X, which is my generation, feel like boomers screwed us kind of thing. The Gen Z think millennials are like spoiled babies who don't know how to do anything but take selfies. Uh, and 
what I'm seeing is a kind of a divergence where some of my daughter's friends aren't on social media at all. Like they're just not on it. And she's, she was on it more last year. And then the beginning of this year, she's like, this isn't good for me. Um, I just don't want it. And she even went to the point of saying, you know, mom, I feel like every, everything that gets me into trouble is on my phone. Maybe I should just not have a phone kind of thing. Um, I feel like adults are also, I mean, it's kind of like we got this hyper saturation right now. And I feel like a lot of adults are really also doing the same thing. A lot of people are getting off of Facebook and Instagram and are trying to figure out, okay, what actually do I want? I want to be in control of this. I don't want this to be controlling me. Um, I don't think there's any, anything new in terms of screens. I don't think other than the fact that, you know, people might be spending more time on them right now, we already know what that does to the brain. But as far as attachment, we are going to have to use our frontal neofrontal cortices and we're going to have to decide how we want to be together. And we're going to have to decide that it's important. Um, otherwise, we're not necessarily going to have the, you know, I mean, I think about people since I do work with sexuality, like I have clients that would prefer to talk to cam girls than to actually go on a date, right? It's just easier for them. It fits into their life better. It they're, If they're avoidantly attached, it's like, well, then they don't have to actually deal with a real person. Um, they're not superficial people. They're not, it's not, you can't be like, oh, that's one of those creepy guys. It's not like that. They're people that, um, it's, it's literally just works better. They haven't had luck on the dating apps, but they can hire someone. And, um, and usually the cam girl, they're just talking to them, you know, just like a, a solution for loneliness and for meeting someone who's like available to really talk to you. Right. So we're going to have to decide that's not good enough. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, as you said, like, you know, when you had your, your daughter in Brazil and every there, everybody there was like, you know, fawning and being all excited about seeing a child and they come to the United States and then there's not as much of that. It's almost like, I don't know, like culturally, maybe it feels like we, we continue at least in our country to create more and more distance between each other. And it makes me think of, um, so I, I do jujitsu where I was oh. doing it up until coronavirus. Um, in New York City, and every six months they would do like a belt promotion. And at the school I did it at Mar the Marcelo Garcia Academy, Marcelo would give a big speech at the beginning. And I've talked about this a lot because I thought it was really beautiful. And I think I had just read The Body Keeps the Score when he said this. But he was like, you know, jujitsu is amazing. It's given me, uh, you know, I've met my wife and I've won championships and I have a school and all these things. And I'm proud of all of those. But I think the thing that I love about jujitsu the most is that it makes us better at being with people. And I thought that there was something really beautiful about that because uh, in a place, even in New York, where we're all kind of like pushed together, it's like everybody's still trying to like, almost like be that same sides of the magnet and create as much space as they can. That it's like this really, really intimate thing that you're doing with a lot of people for a long time. And there's so much of that learning about being with people in all the ways, you know, throughout our nervous system. And he wasn't necessarily saying it that way, but that's what he was saying and almost acknowledging that it's something that, yeah, that that's missing in our culture. Bodies need bodies. Yeah. And there's way to, there's ways for us to communicate that aren't words. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what the third chapter of the book is really about is like, Again, we think that we're speaking the same language because you and I both speak English and it's my first language. I think it's your first language. Uh, and yet there's so many other ways that we crave to be together that we might not even know until we have an experience of it because it's so unusual. You know, in Brazil, when I moved from Brazil to the U.S., I, I didn't really want to. I was kind of, it was one of those things where like the boat, the boat of life shifts, turned corners. And I was like, oh, I guess I, you know, I'm either going to like, I got to get on and that's what's happening. But I don't really, I'm not really, I didn't really want that to happen. 
And when I, one of the main things I was so concerned about was like losing my Brazilianness. And when I remember when I first came back, I went to a somatic experiencing training and I like someone introduced me to like the main teacher it was kind of like a big deal. And I like just hugged him. And um, because at that point I had, I'd only been back like a couple of weeks. And so I was still in the mode of like, fuck it. I don't care what the norms are here. This is who I want to be. And so I'm just going to be this person. But I knew that that wasn't going to be able to last because over time, it just is like, I'm, I am American and I'm going to go back to my Americanness in America, unless I'm around other Brazilians. Mm -hmm. And I, I watched it happen. I, I like blew myself away the first time I shook someone's hand because I was like, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) no, (laughs) I've lost it. (laughs) And just like, you know, for years, I never shook anyone's hand. And in, in Rio, where I lived, it's two kisses, you know, and it's just like, you just get so close to somebody all the time. And when you leave a party, you know, Brazilians kind of have like the best manners ever. It takes a long time. And it's a little bit much sometimes. But like, you know, if you enter a room, and there's 10 people, you go to all 10 people, you don't just like go to the person, you know, and keep your back turned to everyone else. And then when you leave, you also say goodbye to all 10 people. Uh, so, and you know, my book starts with my daughter's experience of coming to the U S because her experience as a seven-year-old was like, it just was so blinding for her, these cultural differences where, you know, her first week of school, she met another little girl and she kissed the little girl on her arm, her forearm, and the girl yanked it away and is like, that's against the rules, germs. And you know, my daughter's like so shocked. And then her way of regulating was really like physically being with other kids. Cause in Brazil, she would run into school and they would like dog pile when they got there, even the teacher. Uh, (laughs) And here we had to like make an agreement with her teacher because here it was all about quote unquote consent. And like, well, what if everyone's not consenting to touching and you need to ask someone first before you touch them. And um, she was like, mom, these people don't know how to love. And I was like, ouch, you know, like I got it. I got what she meant because it's just like, yeah, we don't, we, we relate head to head. We don't relate heart to heart and the Brazilians relate heart to heart. And, and it's a perception. It's a felt sense because, you know, I was a yoga teacher there and I would listen to what I would be saying. Cause I taught in Boulder before that. I was like, I might as well not have said half the things I was saying. I didn't even know how to teach there because it was like in the U S I was always telling people drop out of your head and move into your body, you know, like funnel your energy inward and downward. And for Brazilians, that actually wasn't what they needed to do energetically. It was like, they actually needed to cultivate more focus and more precision. So culture definitely plays a huge part in it. And for me, I mean, I, I don't glorify Brazilian culture. I've lived there, you know, I lived there for eight years and, um, but I do, I think anywhere in the world, people would agree that Brazilians are some of the warmest people and loving people. And um, this value of a being and a, you know, there's all these words in Brazilian culture. I don't know if you know some of them, but you probably do. There's words we don't have like in every language, but um, one of them is my favorite is kafune. Kafune is what you call playing with your hair. Someone else like chida kafune. Like I want you to play with my hair, but it's just one word. Shamegu. Shamegu is like getting real close, like two cats or dogs would to like sniff each other and like get around to give shamegu. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bahia, if you want to greet instead of kissing, you do you down share, you smell like you get right up in the this is called kangochi is like another kind of like word you get right up here is but your kangochi is not your neck it's like this you know vulnerable area erotic area and like smell you smell someone's neck even when you're just meeting them so there's this acknowledgement that like it's not words that are going to introduce us to each other it's like our smell and like our proximity and how how we're going to look towards each other mm-hmm. that's not sexual Right. 
Yeah, it's uh, it reminds me of two things. One was um, being at a movement event where it was the first time I was there with a, a fair amount of people from Brazil. And I had never, it was before I had done jujitsu. So I was like, it was kind of new. But just the way they were in their bodies. And like, I, I mean, I could see it in, in men and women in their hips. I could see this thing that I was like, I, when I looked at everybody else, it's like, a, you know, the other quarter, half the people were from like the West, like the hips were like kind of glued down or glued mm. in place. And yeah, there's a certain amount of like, uh, I don't know, embodiment that they have, at least in their physicality that like, you know, I, I, I feel like is associated with their culture. And it also, the second one was being at a Brazilian restaurant in Williamsburg. And um, I knew the owner, he was a friend of mine and we walked in and there was a really famous uh, jujitsu teacher there. And he was like, oh, I like, I wanna introduce you. And I went over and again, kind of like, not of like the American norm. He just like grabs me and pulls me in and like starts like patting my stomach and like patting my shoulders and things. and I think if I wasn't somebody who'd done jujitsu and if I didn't come from like a movement practice, I'd be like, whoa, like what's this guy doing? But I realized I was like, oh, like this is, this is amazing. Like this is, this is wonderful. I, I, I want us to have more of this, you know? Um, which brings me back to Marcelo's thing about being better at being with people. It's like, oh, like if, you know, maybe developing more opportunities for, for closeness is a way to like start to affect it culturally. Yeah. Seems like we're kind of far from that right now. It's a little yeah. sad. Yeah. Uh, we're in a cultural moment of high, high differentiation, right? Where there's been this ethos that we're, we're all one and, you know, Americans, our national identity is more important than our racial identity or our country of origin. And right now we're in a place where there's like a high need for extreme differentiation based on homogeneity. And I get it. And I think it's, it's obviously an important evolutionary step, but in the doing of that, I just keep asking, but are we happier? Like even within our homogenous groups, like, okay, so now this group is only welcome in this place and this course is only for these people. But within that, are we happier? Like, are we, are we truly getting what we need from one another, from relationship, from friendship? And I don't have any answers. I teach something called the wheel of consent. I really don't like the word consent much at all. Um, I do like the principles of consent, however, but I just feel like we've gotten it wrong a little bit. You know, like I, a lot of people talk about their children and they talk about, well, I don't make my children hug their grandparents or like, if they don't want to do this, they don't have to. And it's like, as if when Brazilians teach their kids to like say goodbye to everyone and give them a kiss, that they're somehow oppressing them or like forcing them into something. We in like our white Protestant Overculture, which is so like mind is better than body and spirit is higher than matter and you know um, anything that's light is better than dark and it's just you just see how how that engenders disembodiment and separation and this idea that it's better to be self sufficient than it is to be in relationship and com- communion of some, in some way. I've noticed a lot with sex education, you know, my daughter actually had sex education online during the pandemic. And I'm like, that's so fucked up. Like at a time when she can't be with her friends, she can't meet anyone new. She can't really touch anybody except me and maybe our relatives. Why would you be teaching somebody sex education? Like as if that's as if mechanics of sex and sex and avoiding disease have are completely separate from relationality from the the questions that we really need help with, which is like who should we how do we choose who to be sexual with and um, how do we have those like should we talk about it or what are the cues or what do we want to know about that person first, um, which is really what kids most of them are wanting to know, but I see people like prohibiting 
I don't know. It's just, we're just in such a weird time where things that should be fairly natural have become so, I mean, can you imagine asking your own two-year-old if you could give them a hug? Right. That's what boulders, that's what like the majority of the boulder people think is right. That's, that's how you restore bodily autonomy is through language. We don't restore bodily autonomy through language. We restore bodily autonomy by intact self-protective responses. Mm. We learn through touching. You don't learn through the words of the, a two-year-old can't even, I mean, people say, oh, they understand everything. Yeah, because they're, they understand it, but they're not, they're not processing it through their brain in the same way. So hyper-verbalization and, and discussing every single choice is, is actually weakening their self-protective responses. Right. It's like the reason why children need to be out there in a field or on a playground playing with one another and it being okay that they actually maybe hurt one another from time to time because then that's how they're learning what how that affects somebody, right? Like if I am two years old and I push over another two-year-old and I see them fall and I see them cry, that I'm going to learn a lot from as opposed to just being told like, don't just don't push people over. It's like, you have to be out there and have those, those moments, like, you know, feeding your intelligence in that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that we're also, we're also in a moment of like very little parental, like parents are, they're, they're over, they overly rely on kids to regulate themselves among themselves. Mm. There's balance, right? Like you, yeah, you want people to have chances for trial and error, but ideally your child would also be having that with you, right? You would also be giving them pushing feedback and wrestling with them. And, you know, that's really where my whole book came from. I don't know if you got to that part, but I was, I teach a class called Activate Your Inner Jaguar. I was living in Brazil. I wasn't teaching the class yet. I was still being a yoga teacher and teaching about sexuality and spirituality. My daughter was like five. I went to visit some friends. There was a group of five people, four of them wanted sushi and one of them wanted pizza. My, or or four wanted pizza and one wanted sushi. I don't remember. My daughter was the one. She convinced everybody to have what she wanted. And Later, my friend called me and just said, you know, you are really raising an authoritarian child and you better do something about it. Or like this, it's going to be really unpleasant. This is going to be like a really annoying adult. And I was, of course, devastated and like didn't realize it because it had only been me and her. And I'm fairly flexible, very parasympathetic, dominant. And so with only two people, if one person says they want grilled cheese or whatever, I'm like, all right, fine, grilled cheese. Like I just wasn't really thinking. I wasn't noticing it. And I went to a somatic practitioner that I was working with and I was feeling sorry for myself. And I was like, you know, I'm a single mom and it's so hard. It's so hard to do the unconditional love and to be the disciplinarian. And it's so hard for me to set those boundaries. And he just said, you know, I'm from the Amazon. So the Amazonia, did you know that? And I'm like, no. And he's like, you're a jaguar look at your skin, look at your golden skin, look at your spots. It's the mothers that teach their cubs to hunt. The fathers don't do anything. They're, they're gone. The mothers teach their cubs to hunt. Go home and watch those videos and start copying what the moms and the jaguar cubs are doing. And so I realized that when I was disciplining, quote unquote, dot my daughter, giving her a limit, I was doing it a lot with my eyes by bulging my eyes and kind of leaning forward with my head. And he's like, you're not, your whole body's not communicating the limit. It's just your head. So I started wrestling with her and pinning her down, holding her head down, you know, enough that she knew that I was in charge. Um, Butting heads with her run, you know, walking around, crawling around the room with her head and really giving her a sense of safety that I'm I'm in charge. She's not in charge. I'm in charge. And I'm physically, I can physically dominate you. And that's going to show you that I'm in charge. Americans are freaked out by that. They're like, what? Like rough up your kid, pin them down. That's so, 
that's terrible. You know, like that's like, how does that not become abuse? And how do you know? It's like, well, you know, through your body, Mm -hmm. you perceive, you feel. I'm not analyzing it. I'm in it. I'm doing it. And I'm listening to what's happening. And she actually loved it. She loved when I was pinning her head down all the time. No, did I, you know, it's a dance. Uh, And so through that process, I realized I had internalized this democratization, like everyone's voice should matter. Her opinion should matter. She's a kid, but like, and instead I was creating someone who actually was deeply insecure because she was taking over a role that she's not at all ready to take over until today. Like now she's bigger than me, which is like really weird physically. She's taller than me and bigger than me. Um, I'm not a small person. I'm almost five, seven. I weigh like 140 pounds or something. She's like almost five, nine and weighs like 160. So we're not doing a ton of wrestling at the moment, which has also gotten really awkward because she has breasts now. And it's just like, it's, it's just a really strange vis- visceral experience to be like towered over by your child. Um, I'm, I think boys and girls go through that. Boys and moms go through that a lot more, I think. Um, but it's just been a very surreal experience for me to like be outsized, um, But at this point, though, not that she has a fully developed neofrontal cortex at all. Um, She doesn't need she needs the physicality, but she needs it in a different way. She doesn't need it in the same way that she needed when she was two or three or four. And when she wasn't getting because I in my mind, it's like, well, dad roughhouses with you. Like I was tired, too. I was like, I don't want to fucking wrestle with you, you know. (laughs) But then I realized, yeah, I was lethargic more than I was tired. I was both, honestly. It's really hard to work full full time and raise a kid by yourself. Um, But all that to say is like this, it it was the physical, you know, I've taught people also to expose their canine tooth Mm -hmm. is a display of dominance. You can do that to a toddler and they'll, they'll back down. Wow. They we are all animals. And so we think that we're not, and we think that somehow we're like these talking heads just walking around, but our children will respond to our nonverbal cues, which is, I mean, essentially the framework for my book, which is called the wild, how we heal trauma, awaken our own power and use it for good was mostly about, um, came to me mostly through, working with women who'd had birth injuries, birth trauma, gynecological trauma, and sexual boundary violations. Because I recognized, oh, most women are in fight or flight responses after, uh, sorry, flight or freeze responses. And I recognized through the process of working with a lot of women, like 803 years, um, that when I could help them restore healthy fight responses, that's when they would complete the the cycle from the earlier trauma. But in a way, it's not different. It's like activating the healthy aggression in myself, activated the healthy aggression in my daughter, which then there is no need for the unhealthy aggression. Right. So do you you feel like a lot of people then don't experience that playful, healthy aggression during like developmental time and that that plays a role in a lot of the things that they deal with later on down the road. I do. And I believe, but I also believe that um, it doesn't happen as much as adults. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, if you ask if adults are saying, well, I'm not having good sex. It's like, they would never consider wrestling sex or um, some kind of a game that you play as part of a sexual interaction. It's like sex means something very specific and the play element is kind of taken out of it. It's all become a power thing. Yeah, yeah, I I get the, I've been thinking a lot about like the idea of play, the idea of like playfulness and like playfulness in culture and, you know, so many of these things, whether it's, I don't know. Everything almost has to have like an end game. Like there needs to be a win to it. You know, I guess you could even say it with, with the way probably a lot of people approach sex that it's like, there's an end game. There's a win as opposed to being like, well, 
what happens if I approach these scenarios with a little more playfulness? And you can play seriously or you can play joyfully, but like, what if I approach things more playful, which means that there's no win. It's just, it's the act of playing of whatever like the tension is of that game. Um, and I think that's what I was hearing when I was thinking about you playing with your daughter was like, oh, it's not, it's not a, it's not a winning or losing thing. Like this is just, this is just playfulness. And, and that can start to transcend into like all aspects, you know, like having a kid, there can be that, of course, like the, the, like you said, like playful uh, uh, aggression, but then there can also be communication. That's just like people dancing in the living room. And, and it seems like there's, there's not enough of either of them really. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious just because, it, you know, you're, you lived in Boulder, so, you know, kind of like the things that are popular around here. And I feel like everyone has a th somatic therapist. Um, and I realize more and more that, that it actually means different things depending on what yeah. kind of work they're doing or, or who they are, or what their background is. So I'd love to know a little bit about somatic therapy and perhaps in the context of the work that you do and maybe some other uh, types of somatic therapy that, that you have found valuable or interesting? It's a great question. Partially it's because Boulder is kind of the birthplace of a lot of these somatic therapies. So Dr. Rolf moved to Boulder um, towards the end of her life, started the Rolfing School. Peter Levine, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, studied with Dr. Rolf, moved to Boulder. Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute is in Boulder. Ron Kurtz, Hakomi therapist, was a Rolfer, uh, started Hakomi. That became the Psychomotor, Psychosensory Motor Institute with Pat Ogden, um, or at least uh, didn't become it, but like a branch of it. Um, so, yeah, you're in the hotbed. Um, I was very surprised when I heard of the uh, the modality sexological bodywork. I had never heard of it before. And I was like, dude, you know that this is fringe. If I lived in Boulder and I've never heard of this, <laughs> you know, this is either like cutting edge or just like way out on the margin. Um, but but it actually, in all seriousness, I was very shocked after having a baby that having come from Boulder, where I was exposed to every different kind of somatic therapy that I had no idea how to heal myself. Like that was a shock because living in Boulder for five years, you know, Feldenkrais, every kind of yoga, every kind of Buddhism. Um, you know, I studied at all the yoga studios, so not all of them, not really Bikram, but, you know, I just, I felt like my toolkit, craniosacral, um, you know, the craniosacral, one of them is there, the biodynamic school is there. It just was flabbergasting to me that I could know all those modalities and have zero clue how to heal myself after I had a baby. But that wasn't your question. Um, you know, the word soma just means body. So really anything can be a somatic practice. If someone were listening and they were trying to figure out what kind of somatic therapy that they wanted, then I always say practitioner first. So I don't think the modality is as important as the practitioner. Um, my first experience with somatic experiencing was in Boulder with Nan Kenny. I don't know if she's taking clients. She's a great grandmother. She is the badassest therapist that ever lived. Um, her husband, Frank Berliner, is a teacher at Naropa, so he, uh, he might still take clients. Um, transference is important to consider. So like I did my, some of my best work with this therapist in Brazil that I mentioned, Dudu Estevez, in part because it was a man and he was big and he was built like my perpetrator. And I knew that there was a visceral fear that I had of working with men. And I, even though I dated men and had a husband and whatever, I just was like, okay, my next step is like, I have to like step into the ring with a man in this way. So I think you, people have to listen to themselves and where they are on their trajectory. Nan was really important to me because she was at least two generations older than me. And I needed that at that time and that kind of boundaried approach to the work. Um, so, and I think it's, 
especially if you know, like if you're ambivalently attached where you easily jump into relationships, you easily trust, you want to go far fast, then it's really good to get in the habit of interviewing people and not just like taking the first recommendation that comes along and kind of getting in really far and then being like, oh, I don't want to start with someone else because I don't want to tell them the whole story again. You shouldn't really have to tell your whole story to a somatic therapist. Um, A lot of the times when I work with people, I don't even know the story that we're working with because we're really, it's not that we're not talking to each other, but in the present moment, I know what I need to know. Um, I don't usually need to know a lot of backstory. Um, So, I mean, I love a lot of modalities. I love Feldenkrais work, both functional um, integration and awareness through movement. I love somatic experiencing. I, I personally only go to somatic experiencing practitioners that are not psychologists, psychiatrists, or um, MSWs. Like I like somatic therapists that come from body backgrounds, um, personal preference. Um, there's some great Hakomi practitioners out there And then there's people that are really movement based. Like I know you had like Elke Schroeder on your podcast. I don't know if she explicitly says that she works with trauma, but like Jane Clapp, like that are coming way more on the movement side um, than on than what I would consider like on the awareness side of things. I think that in somatic experiencing, because I'm a practitioner, I've had sessions with tons of different kinds of people because it doesn't require as much attachment work. And I think that's valuable to test out a couple of somatic experiencing practitioners. You might find that each of them is like radically different in how they practice. So when, when will your book be available? When can, when it's available now um, for Uh pre-order on all of the places, Amazon, it's uh, Harper wave is a feminist division of Harper Collins at your local bookstore. You could ask them to order it, or you could, um, be on pre-order if you're, if you're not into the big A, um, on an independent site. Yeah. But it'll be delivered to you a few days before April 13th. Okay. Well, I'll make sure to, uh, put in my order at the, at the Boulder bookstore, assuming that I'll still be here by then. Um, if anybody is curious to, I don't know, continue picking up what you're putting down, um, what is the, the best way to do that? Uh, You can go to my website, magamama.com, M-A-G-A-M-A-M-A.com. MAGA, no, um, nothing to do with the current, is is it, can I call him a president anymore? When when am I going to be able to say that it's not the president? Anyway, MAGA means sorceress in Portuguese. Um, So you can go there. My Instagram is magamamas, M-A-G-A-M-A-M-A-S. And I'm pretty active on Instagram, so. I tend to, you know, teach through videos and writing. Are you um, leading any workshops or anything? I saw that you participate in the uh, Our Breath Collective as well. Yeah, so there at all the Breath Collective. Yeah, I'm there every week. We breathe together uh, for twelve to fifteen minutes every morning, Monday through Friday. We have all different kinds of breath experience. Um, we're not into breath as dogma, so we do everything from um, Wim Hof to Buteyko to yogic pranayama to um, just about, we have a super wide variety of teachers, transform transformational breath, DNS. Um, one of our instructors is a DNS person. Um, so it's really varied. It's We have about 200 people that breathe together. You can use my name, Kim, um, K-I-M, as a code and get $10 off the first month. You can join anytime. And we have free workshops. So if you're a member, we have workshops that are free that are super cool on all different kinds of topics. And we're actually have, we have our first training that just started um, six month breath school training. That's for personal trainers, yoga teachers, therapists, um, really anybody who just feels like knowing more about the breath would serve whatever they're offering their clients. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm interested. I think I'm going to uh I think I'm going to sign up. Oh, cool. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Maybe I'm you gonna, could teach a workshop. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I've been um, you know, paying attention from afar and now after speaking to you, I'm like, "You know what? I'm like I'm on it now." 
Oh, good. Yeah, it's a really fantastic group of people that's really mixed. And that's been a joy. It's a, there's not to me, there's not that many spaces where there's like mixed genders, um, especially in like the biohacking um, breath world. It's weird how it kind of got gendered and then breath work kind of got pushed there. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to have a mixed group and the instructors are like a super great mix of personalities and backgrounds and everything. Awesome. I think well, you love it. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm really, really looking forward to finishing the book. I, uh, I start, like I said, right when you sent it to me, I started reading it and I was like, oh man, all right, I've got to go to bed. And then I woke up this morning. I was like, oh, I want to read some more. And then I was looking at the time. And I was like, oh, we're about to do the call, but I want to keep reading. So I, uh, I'm going to finish it. And then I'm going to send you an email after. Please do. Yeah. I, I would love it. This is one of my first podcasts that I've done. That's about the book and, you know, writing a book is a huge labor of love. And of course, my hope is that it's really serves a lot of people um, because I really do think it's so important for us to have a felt sense understanding of our nervous system so that we can relate in the ways that all the ways that we talked about on this call yeah. um, that feel just, you know, play is an outcome actually of a healthy sympathetic charge with our social nervous system so that we can all just play more together.